Good morning, everyone. Man, it's weird to be on this side of the good morning, um, but here I am. I am excited and honestly just grateful for this opportunity to share God's word and especially share God's word with um, my CCPC family and my CCPC family in Virginia as well. <laughs> um, and just grateful that you guys are here to hear and um, just really grateful for the fact that I've been encouraged by some of you guys to just preach, preach God's word and be supported by you all. So just thank you again. So the scripture reading for today is 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34 to 54. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I sized it up by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him, and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to it, to them. He said, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of the shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He, he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, who, have who you have defied. This day, the Lord will del deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of Phil the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know what is not by the sword or spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands." As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into the, his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from his sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that the hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men in Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharon Road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered the camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. This is the word of God. 
So today I'll be talking about one of the most famous but misunderstood passages within the Bible, that being the uh, battle between David and Goliath. Growing up, I've heard sermon after sermon after sermon about this story being about many things, but primarily that we are to be like David by slaying Goliath, who represents our biggest obstacles in our lives. And this big obstacle can be many things that the preacher or hearer themselves want it to be. I've heard sermons about how Goliath is our sinful temptations and that we need to cut out all temptations in our life just as David cut off the head of Goliath. I've heard sermons about how Goliath is our laziness that, we, that prevents us from doing our daily devotions and that we need to equip certain things such as prayer, church, accountability, and blessings from God as represented in the stones that David used in the story. Lastly, I've heard sermons from TV evangelist that said, Goliath is that, that job that you want and that you need to trust that by God's help, you'll get it, even though it seems impossible at the moment. All of these inter interpretations come up short of what the real meaning of this passage is. Um, and I hope today that I can faithfully convey God's message from scripture of this battle to you. Um, but to fully appreciate the passage, we have to look at the context, and our denomination loves doing this, going through the context of a passage. Um, so again, in order to do this well, I want to talk about the greater context of the battle, which goes back to the time of Joshua, that being around 200 years prior to this battle. So Joshua was the successor of Moses, for those who have read the Old Testament. Joshua was a successor of Moses during the exodus um, out of Egypt. And before the exodus, God had promised Moses that the enemy land of Canaan would be the land that God would give to Israel. And many of us know it as the land filled with milk and honey. God chose the people of Israel to receive this land so they could advance and bring forth the kingdom of God in the nations. But during Moses' time of leadership, Israel was unable to enter into Canaan. Um, and receive this land because they were scared of the enemies that were there. They essentially didn't trust God. They were too scared. Therefore, inhibiting Israel from completing the task of advancing God's kingdom given to them by the Lord. Um, they, they didn't trust the Lord. They didn't trust the Lord, even though that God won them many battles against their enemies before. Um, because of this, Again, Israel was temporarily prevented by God from entering the promised land. But Joshua, who was acknowledged by God to have faith, was appointed to be the leader over Israel and eventually accomplished what Moses could not. He entered Canaan, defeated some of the enemies, and claimed some of the land to be God's. But while Joshua did many great things during his life, he died before he could complete this task of claiming the land for God. So, and before he died, Joshua gives a commission to, to all of Israel. Joshua commanded Israel to push out all the remaining, remaining enemy nations from the land because he remembered that this is what God had commanded Israel to do in order to fulfill the purposes of advancing God's kingdom. But in typical Israel fashion, they failed to carry out what Joshua had told them to do. They did not drive the enemies out. 
which again stopped Israel again from advancing God's kingdom. And I hope you can see the theme here. Israel must battle and remove all enemies from the land against God and against his people to fulfill their purposes of bringing forth God's kingdom. And this will be a constant theme in today's preaching. But this is where the Bible transitioned to the time of the judges. And the judges in this time are not the typical judge that we think of now. They are more like military leaders appointed by God to declare war on the enemy nations so that they could destroy them. Essentially, the judges were appointed to do what the Israelites refused to do in light of Joshua's command, which is, again, push out the enemies. The era of the judges is not a happy or good time for the Israelites. The book is essentially about God's punishment of Israel for their disobedience from Joshua's command because they had caused these enemy nations to take portions of the promised land. And as a result of these punishments, the people of Israel would cry to God for mercy, and God would respond. God would raise up judges to deliver them from their enemies and accomplish a temporary period of peace. Until, until Israel would eventually go back to their disobedient ways again, repeating the cycle of punishment, asking God's grace, and God giving another judge. But the problem was these judges were, grew to be unfaithful to God. They grew to be unfaithful to God. They often doubted, disobeyed, and did not fulfill their duty of driving out the enemy nations from the land. uh, And this unfaithfulness of these judges in this cycle ultimately points to the fact that Israel needed a ruler over them. They needed one single ruler to protect them, to defend them, to lead them in the law, and to bring forth the kingdom of God. And this is a reoccurring verse throughout the the book of Judges. And it says here, In those days there is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel needed a king in order to fulfill the purposes that God had given them, which is what 1 Samuel 17, the passage I am talking about today, is addressing. And we see the importance of a singular leader even today. Um, In college, I love group projects. Why? I love group projects because I was a freeloader (laughs) who did little to no work. You did little to no work, but got the good grade. Um, you, all my Emory students are probably like, dang, I hate Joseph now. Um, but for some reason, I got lucky, where I was always grouped with good students who wanted a high score. Um, I didn't care as much. I was a bad student. But they were never good at setting a good work structure for our group, allocating responsibilities, and essentially weren't good at leading. If there was a good group leader who I respected and organized the works, I would have definitely contributed more if they had asked me to. But yes, out of my laziness, I did what was right in my own eyes <laughs> for myself and did almost no work. And this is the same for businesses, schools, churches, and for any group. A leader is needed for a group to have proper order and rule. And for Israel, an upright king was needed for them to have proper order so that they could obey God and advance his kingdom. Right? And this is While the era of the judges emphasized Israel's need for a king, it also showed how Israel had forgotten the king that they already had, God himself. Israel was not looking to the one true ruler 
who they had entered into covenant with. In Exodus, the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai, Israel was enacted as a theocratic nation. And this basically was an agreement by both parties that God would rule over Israel as their king. But in 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, before the battle, Israel had forgotten this truth and demanded to God to give them an earthly king. The people of Israel said this to Samuel, who is the last judge, in Samuel chapter 8, verse 19 and 20. No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Saul is eventually elected as the first king of Israel, as the first earthly king of Israel, and is the king of David during this battle against Goliath. But it's interesting to note, though, that in previous events in Scripture, God himself was said to be Israel's warrior king, their warrior king. And in in Exodus 14, 14, it says, There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. In Deuteronomy 1.30, it says, The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in Exodus 15.21, after Moses and Israel had crossed over the Red Sea, they sang of God being their divine warrior king in celebration, acknowledging that he was the one who had won their battles. But finally, in, in, in 1 Samuel 17, the passage I have read today, David even affirms this truth during his battle with Goliath when he says in verse 47, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. But yet Israel forgot that God was their warrior king. They asked for a replacement. They had asked for a replacement. They had asked a replacement for the all-powerful God who had won all their battles for them before. That's crazy. So in 1 Samuel 17, Israel is in this era of the kings. So to recap it, Joshua, Judges, kings. We're in need for a king. And as talked about before, the Bible shows that Israel needed a king in order, the, in order for them to drive out the enemies in the land so that they could advance God's kingdom. But in this passage, Israel is again in a situation where they cannot do that. Israel's situation seems hopeless as Goliath is the rebellious enemy of God who is crushing Israel's army. Goliath has challenged Israel to a champion's battle where the winner of this one-on-one duel will determine if Israel or if the Philistine armies will come out victorious. And the odds are not in Israel's favor. (laughs) They're not. The description of Goliath in this passage is very detailed and actually might be one, if not the most detailed description of a physical appearance of anyone in all of the Bible. Um, Goliath is described as being six cubits and a span tall, which is around nine to 10 feet. He is covered in 130 pounds of armor. In his hand, he holds a spear with a 16-pound iron head. His biceps are bigger than an average man's torso. And even from a distance, Goliath's defiant challenge to Israel seems to have been so loud that he interrupts David's conversations with his brothers. In verse 23, Goliath is an absolute monster, or as we young people like to say, a menace to society. (laughs) Um, And Israel feels it. The passage describes the people of Israel as being in great fear. They knew that no one in their army could match up with his Philistines, with the Philistines' unstoppable warrior. Even worse, Saul, 
who was supposed to be the Israel's warrior king and was supposed to be the one who represented Israel as the champion, refused to face Goliath because he was too scared. He was too scared. Instead of properly fulfilling his role as Israel's king, Saul is instead searching in all of Israel for someone to fight for him. Right? And again, this completely goes, goes against what the people had asked in a king earlier in this book. When the people told Samuel, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is what Israel said to Samuel. But what has happened here? The king that the people had appointed for themselves has now backfired in their faces. As Saul, the people's representative as warrior king, cannot do anything for them. He's cowering. Israel was utterly helpless before Goliath. But God, by his grace, raised up David to be the king that would deliver Israel from this hopeless situation. Um, Yeah, and it says here in chapter 16, the chapter right before this, Right before the events of the battle, God has rejected Saul as king and appoints David to be, although he's not the king right now, but the second king of Israel. And during this transition, scripture says that the spirits of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now David, being appointed the next king of Israel, is fighting Goliath with the spirits of the true divine warrior king of Israel, who is God himself. And David knows this truth, as we can see in this passage. In verse 37, David said that this is this in, in connection with his occupation as a shepherd. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Then in verses 45 to 47, David says to Goliath, But I come to you in the name of the Lord of the host, the God of, uh, the, God of the armies of Israel, that this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike down and cut off your head, for the battle is the Lord's. So David knows, unlike the rest of Israel, that God is the true king who will defeat Goliath. And this is exactly how the battle unfolds. David slings a stone, hits Goliath on the forehead, is knocked unconscious, causing him to fall on the ground, And then David goes forth and cuts off the head of Goliath, thus killing the Philistines' unstoppable unstoppable, uh, champion. Goliath, who was the enemy of God, who was preventing Israel from advancing God's kingdom, is brought down by God's appointed king, David. But while David seems like he is the hero of the story, as the upright king who has helped Israel defeat their unstoppable enemy, which again has allowed them to resume in their kingdom advancing work, David ultimately really foreshadows the even greater king to come. In 2 Samuel, um, God makes a covenant with David as king. And he says this in his covenant um, and promises this in his covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12 to 13, God says to Samuel, when your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we see God promise to David that a true king that would deliver Israel and establish his kingdom forever will come from his line, from David's line, from his seed. And we see God keep this promise 
to David, as Jesus is the great king who eventually is born through David's line. In Matthew 1, we are given a glimpse, well, not a glimpse, a record of Jesus' Jesus' genealogy. And I won't read out the genealogy because that would just take too much time, and I don't know how to pronounce all the names in there. But in verse 1, at the very beginning of the chapter, it states that Jesus the Messiah is the son of David. And this statement is made at the very beginning of the chapter, even before the genealogy itself is introduced or listed out. Additionally, while there are other kings in Jesus' line, such as King Solomon, David's son, David is the only one in this list who has the title of king written out explicitly in this entire chapter. Again, these things show that there's a clear connection that Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, came through the line of David, who was the king after God's own heart. And the story of David and Goliath ultimately conveys this message that Christ as the foreshadowed greater king of David, is the only one who can conquer our greatest enemy, which is sin, our rebellion, Satan, our our rebellion against God, as represented Goliath. And he's the only one who can truly advance God's kingdom. Because again, the people of Israel needed to drive out the enemies in order to advance God's kingdom. Just as David defeated Goliath for hopeless Israel, Christ has, uh, has, is the one who has defeated sin for us who are utterly helpless. Jesus was the appointed representative of God, our champion, who was sent to overcome all our sins, and we simply stood to the side and watched Christ win our battle. And because Jesus has conquered sin, the kingdom of God will come in in its fullness through our perfect king. So that's, that's a lot. That was a lot of context, but... It's fun. I enjoy this. I love seminary. Um, so how does this passage relate to us now? I say one. First, the numerous amount of misinterpretations, misinterpretations of this text really show that there is a desire in all of us to want God's kingdom now, even for non-Christians. We can even see this in non-Christians. Why is, it at the, why is it that the story of David and Goliath is such a popular message to teach on by so many churches, cults, and TV evangelists? Why does such a wide range of hearers resonate with these misinterpretations on this passage, such as that we need to be like David to kill Goliath, who, are sim- who is simply our biggest challenge to self-improvement in our lives? And I believe it is because in every person's heart, we know there's something wrong with our lives. We always think that there's always that one thing that's preventing us from happiness. We always think that there's that one thing that is going against our moral code. And there's always that, and, and simply put, there's always that one Goliath that must be slain in our lives. Sin has flooded every corner of human life with brokenness and a sense of things are not the way it should be. Our innermost being cries out, to the reality that life could and should be better. And in doing this, we are, without realizing it, yearning for God's perfect and higher kingdom to come now. And a lot of people, you hear people, a lot of people say, like, we need to go back to the garden. We need to go back to Eden. And there's some truth to that, that we were separated from God from Eden. But we learned from Pastor Young's sermon in the past, no, there's a greater life to come, that, and God's ushering his perfect kingdom to come. 
And there's a reason in all of us why we have that desire, because we were made to be with him. And this leads to me to my second point. The story of David Goliath tells us to put our faith in the ultimate king. Christ himself, who will establish his kingdom for all of eternity, is our king. Not only do we attempt to bring God's kingdom now, we also try too many times to usher in God's kingdom by our own strength. In America, where individualism and self-achievement is near the core of our culture, we often make ourselves the king of our own lives. And you'll hear it today. I want to be free. I want to do what I want to do. I want to do what is right in my own eyes. Right? We want the satisfaction and glory of saying that we resolve our problems and that we are the overcomers. We say that we are the ones who are going to bring great change into this world or we are the one that is going to make great change in our own lives or even our spiritual lives. We think that it is up to us to evangelize and convert the masses, to remove all the problems in this world, to remove all the sin in our own lives, but we forget that God is the only one who can do these things through Christ our King. And it's funny because in this story of David and Goliath, Saul subtly tries to take the credit for David's victory. Before the battle, Saul clothes David with his tunic, armor, and his sword. And during that ancient time, it was common belief that wearing someone else's clothing imbued that person with their essence, thus strengthening that person. So by Saul giving his, his equipment to David, he was setting up a situation for himself to receive the credit if David won the battle. And he did. <laughs> but as we know from the passage and by God's grace, David ends up taking off all of the armor and using a slingshot instead of David's sword and equipment. We think so naturally and quickly that we are like this idealized version of David who is defeating all the Goliaths in our lives. But in all reality, we are way more like King Saul, who is too weak to advance God's purposes, too weak to mend the brokenness of our lives and of the world, but yet we want all the glory for ourselves. My brother worked for several senators in the past, who I will keep unnamed. <laughs> um, but when my brother worked for these senators, he often would talk about how numerous amounts of people would call him and his coworkers in hopes of getting a request through to the senator, such as you know, expediting a immigration process for a relative or asking the senator to stop, help stop public schools from teaching a certain thing. The list goes on and on. You, know, you guys know the drill. Um, well, I think a lot of these people who keep calling these senators are a little crazy. <laughs> I've come to appreciate the fact that these people have come to a realization, maybe in a bad ideologous way, but still, in a, come to a realization that someone else other than themselves is the only one who can bring change. For these people, they really trusted in these senators to enact change on their behalf of their request. And I want to ask you the same thing. Who do you go to in your time of need? Do you go to as mentioned before, to your own strength? Do you resort to your friends or significant others in hard times? Do you lash onto a political party in hopes that they will make, a, they make our society better? Ultimately, who do you see as the king in your life, who you serve, who will bring forth God's kingdom? In the same likeness of those people relying on their senators, I urge you to petition our need, your needs to the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ, our king. But unlike many politicians today, the Lord will fulfill every promise that he has made to his people. 
So go to him with confidence. Put your faith in the one true king. Lastly, this passage tells us that we are to live out our lives with the knowledge that Christ is the king who has conquered death. But that does not mean we are, part, we are not part of this kingdom building process. That does not mean we are to sit idly and be passive. Whenever David defeated Goliath, it is said in verse 52 that the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and chased the Philistines and plundered the camp. Once David had won the battle against Goliath, the rest of Israel followed his lead and finished the enemy off. We as Christians are to do the same as the Israelites in this passage. We know that Christ, our King, has defeated sin, so we must go forth and fight sin in our lives and in this world with the knowledge of the victorious work of Christ. We obey Christ because we know he has done the perfect deed on the cross. So praise God to, for his wonderful works and his word, and praise Christ our King, who is the King who really represents his people, who does, who wins the battle that we cannot win, and who's the one who loves us and died for us. So let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you so much for, again, this opportunity to share your word, God. Just thank you for your word and the fact that you, you so humbly revealed yourself to your people, even though you had no obligation to do so. We disobeyed you. We, sought, we seek to replace you even now with kings in our own lives. We seek to have other masters in our lives. We seek to have other sources of confidence in our own lives, God. But Lord, you are so gracious and loving, and you gave us the perfect king to fight the battle, to do the work that we can never do. So Lord, I pray that you just grow this word in our hearts. Grow the gospel in our hearts. Know that we are sinful. Help us to know that we are sinful and that we need you, Lord. But Lord, in light of that, God, help us to see how great your love for us is, to see how amazing your works are, and see how constant and loving and faithful you are to your people, God. Um, so I just, again, thank you so much, God. I pray that we, as your people, can go forth and fight the battle that you have won, Lord. And I pray that you just strengthen us to do your good work and to love you more. We just praise you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.